Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, we do pray that your spirit would be pleased to illumine the word in our souls, even today. For Christ's sake, amen. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story. It's the old Greek myth of Achilles. That's where we get the Achilles heel from. The story of Achilles was that he had a mother who loved him very dearly, the way that all mothers love their children, and wished that her child would flourish and prosper, who would come into the fullness of blessing and have a joyful life. And mother wished that so much that she willing, was willing to kind of, in some ways, strike a deal with the devil. Figured out a mechanism whereby she could kind of assure blessing for her child, and in, according to the Greek myth, was able to journey to the underworld to the river Styx and figured out that if she took her brand new little infant child and dipped him in the river Styx, everything that the water touched would become immortal. And so you have a child who would be unable to die, unable to perish, and mom not being able to touch the water, having not been permitted as part of terms of the deal, held the child by the heel, dipped him in the water, pulled him out, and you have this immortal, invincible child with one weakness, his heel. The only place the water hadn't touched, and of course, as Greek myth goes, you would know how it's going to end. It's a Greek myth. It always ends badly. Everybody always dies, and apparently, according to them, Paris, with a poisoned arrow, shoots him, luckily, in the back of the heel, and he dies from poison, terribly, horribly, and awfully. They were capturing as part of the myth the idea of this kind of uh, the tragic flaw in a heroic character. You know, a character that's otherwise great and grand and strong and mighty, brilliant and beautiful, excellent in every way, with one spectacular weakness. 
It's how many of the Greek myths go. It's how many, actually, if you, you think about it, it's how much of God's creation goes as well. You can ponder just the various creatures that God has made. They're amazing creatures, right? Porcupines and hedgehogs, amazing critters, right? Hedgehogs are one of the most adorable little creatures that God has made. All spiky on the outside. This amazing defense that God has given them where they can hunch over and it's just pointy and prickly and bad. But if you get them flipped over, what's there? Have you ever seen a hedgehog on its back? They're the softest, most ridiculous looking rats with these tiny little fuzzy bellies and they're absolutely hysterical to watch. Porcupines, likewise, their underbelly is soft. You can get to them if you ever manage to figure out how to get them on your back. You could kill them quite easily. Their weakness has been exposed. In so many ways, these illustrations remind me of kind of life in the American church. Life in the American church in so many ways mirrors the the story of Achilles to me where you have this brilliant church, the American church, filled with beauty and power and dignity and grace unlike pretty much most other places in world and church history. I mean, how was our nation founded? It was founded by some of the greatest theologians in world history, fleeing persecution and landing on these shores and planting a church that from the very beginning brought theological brilliance with them. I mean, the Westminster Confession of Faith makes it to these shores like shortly after it's written. I mean, it's amazing to think about, like, there's more brilliant theological resources to read in English than any other language in the world, right? I have a library that's better than most pastors everywhere else in the world. If I don't understand a passage, I can walk to my library over in my study and I have a half dozen or a dozen books on any passage in the Bible. I have more resources available to me and you have more resources available to you than any Christian in world history. Part of a church that's Historically founded by brilliant theologians, a a nation that's been marked by affluence and freedom, resources left, right, and center, brilliant denominations all over our country, and even on top of that, great awakenings as our nation is started. I mean, if you were to look at the American church kind of as an animal, it would be very much that kind of porcupine. It would look indefensible. It would look like, I mean, indestructible. It would look like something that could not be corrupted because it's so unique and brilliant. Well, you wouldn't say that today. You probably would have said that about a year ago. In fact, probably maybe about the first week of March you might have said it. That idea might have began to crumble the second week of March, certainly falls apart by the third, and now we're talking about an American church that's, in many cases, in free fall. Because we've had our weak spot exposed. 
We've had our Achilles heel exposed. We, just like the adorable hedgehog, has been flipped over, and the soft underbelly of the American church has been shown this year, and it is this. We are accustomed to Christianity being brilliant when we are at ease. That's really what it comes down to. We are accustomed to Christianity being a beautiful thing and a brilliant thing when we are at ease. And 2020 has been an amazing gift from God to showcase that that we're not a church that is accustomed to dealing with any sort of difficulty. And I don't mean Christ Ridge, I mean the American church. Further on top of that, so often the way that we treat our difficulty is by kind of taking some time to focus on ourselves. Oh my goodness, if I have heard that a dozen times this year, I've heard it 400. Right? I'm just having a hard time. I just need to, to take some time away and focus on myself. As a pastor, I hear that. My thought is always, so you're admitting that you have cancer and the treatment is to have more cancer. Why do we do that? What is that weakness? Well, we're accustomed to ease. And I, I really think actually, it's not simply an accustomed, like growing accustomed to, to life being easy. It, it honestly is that we've grown accustomed to life being all about me. A spectacularly self-centered version of Christianity. It's all about me. It's all about me. Matthew, in his gospel, is walking us through the ministry of Christ Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. And interestingly, Matthew is, he's not like Luke. Luke tells it as best we can tell chronologically, start to finish what the ministry of Jesus kind of looked like. He's um, medically minded and probably a little bit closer to what we would think of as Western historian. Matthew is probably better characterized as a preacher. Everything's kind of out of order, but it's arranged thematically. In chapters 5 through 7, he's laid out for us the initial teachings of Jesus of what does the ministry of Jesus look like, and he's laid out for us the Sermon on the Mount challenging our self-identity as humans. Chapters 8 and 9, and then even following into 10 and such, he then begins to say, well, pragmatically, what does that work out like? What, what, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? We have his teaching in verses or chapters 5 through 7, okay, 8 through 10, and, and then even following. What do we do with that? Why does it matter? What, is, what does that even mean? And in chapters eight, we, chapter 8, we saw these wonderful portraits of the centurion that has faith in Christ and these miraculous healings and all of these marvelous interactions until we get to chapter 9. 9 is intriguing because as Matthew tells this, he leaves out our favorite bits of the story. He doesn't include all of the kind of salient little details that we like that that get us excited about this passage. We love the awkwardness of tearing a hole in the roof and lowering the gentleman down. Matthew doesn't include that because that's not Matthew's topic at hand. 
He's challenging us with what it means to be a disciple. He's challenging us with what it means to follow Christ. And interestingly, here at this first part of chapter 9, his solution is not with taking time to work on yourself. That's not his solution. He doesn't honestly care about that, it seems like. His solution is to kind of grab you by the ears and turn your face So you have to look at Jesus. Stop navel-gazing. Start Savior-gazing. Meditating on Christ and His glory. And as a result, he skips, like I said, the interesting parts. You know this from Mark and from Luke. What happens here is Jesus is filled with a crowd. There's a crowd all around Him, and He's staying at a house, and the, the crowd gets so large, the interior of the house is full, the exterior of the house is full, and there's no way to get in or out. And there's a paralyzed man who, as best we can tell, is severely ill. Not often that we hear of men being paralyzed to the extent that he seems to be hinted at here. And his friends do an amazing thing. They say, well, we got to get him in front of Jesus. This is the only way this man is going to be healed. And you know what? We don't really care about the social contract anymore. We don't really care about social conventions. We're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend in front of Jesus. So they go up on the roof, and what has to have been the most awkward party ever in the history of the world, they literally dig a hole in the center of the roof and lower him down in the middle of the interaction. Can you imagine just how that plays out, right? The awkwardness. Everybody's standing around talking. Everybody's trying to get as close to Jesus as they can. They're listening, and then all of a sudden, you like hear a noise, and you're like, what? And stuff starts falling out of the ceiling, Mud and sticks and support start falling, start breaking branches, you know, get stuff out. So then all of a sudden this guy just descends from the ceiling. The interchange that follows is intriguing in so many ways. Matthew tells it without the details, getting at to the point of really focusing just on what Jesus has done, not really caring about any of the others, it seems. The gentleman is lowered down, Jesus addresses him in verse 2, take heart, my son, and you're hoping at this point that Jesus would say, you've been made well. I mean, it is slightly awkward, the guy's been lowered down on a pallet right there in the middle of the room, it's not like he can leave, right? That's the part you forget about the story. He can't go anywhere. He's just kind of sitting there awkwardly waiting to see what Jesus will do. And what does Jesus do? Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Great. I'm still the center of attention in the room. It's still really uncomfortable. It's still really awkward. And I can't go anywhere. Great. But again, we being Westerners, and certainly most of us not growing up with a a Jewish background, we lose the significance of what Jesus has said there because he's taken up a task that only can be performed by God himself. A task that belongs only to God himself. Right, it would be the equivalent of me going to do prison ministry, and as I walked through the, you know, the halls of the prison and got a chance to talk with prisoners and grab their hand and give them a squeeze and say, be at peace, I've pardoned you for your crimes, you may leave the prison. 
What happens when he then tries to leave the prison? Right? They'll shoot him. Because I have no authority to pardon him. I, I can't commute his sentence. I can't let him go. The president can do that. I can't. I don't have the authority to do that. Here, interestingly, Jesus does that and takes this man and says, look, your sins are forgiven. And in doing so, proclaims himself to be authoritatively equal with God. That's why verse 3, their response is not unexpected. It's no longer the kind of whispering to each other, can you believe what's happening? It's not, who's going to pay for the roof? Jesus says your sins are forgiven, and immediately the conversation turns to, oh no, this guy's a blasphemer. He's blaspheming God because he has said he is equal with God. Oh, this just got really interesting. You know, it's been intriguing how so much, uh, at least in my childhood, many of the early uh, kind of new atheists and those that were trying to be hip and trendy, largely coming from the UK and places about, you know, well, the Bible never, Jesus never says that he's God. Well, Jesus never says that he's God if you literally don't read the Bible, because that's exactly what he's saying here. He's explaining to the Jews in their own specific language, I am on par with the king of creation. And it's intriguing that I think, again, as Christians, we we understand this intellectually, that, that Jesus has the authority to interfere in creation because he made it. We intellectually understand that. Jesus is allowed to to interfere in creation. It belongs to him. He's the Lord of creation. We understand that intellectually, but we forget that emotionally. Or worse yet, we turn into 18th century liberals and we say the Lord intervened in creation way back in the day, but he's kind of past that point in his career. God closed the door on that part of his activity. He's made creation, but he's just kind of letting it run now. It's like a really fancy computer simulation. He doesn't care anymore. And we forget. He's here. He's inside creation forever. That's what Jesus has done. He's my mediator. He's part of the created order in his humanity, only in his humanity, not in his divinity. And it would be no surprise that he would intervene in it. You see, friends, when you remember not just intellectually but emotionally that the Lord continues to intervene in creation, it puts a different framework for years like 2020. It puts a different perspective on it because suddenly it helps us understand that it's not like we've just been cast aside to just hope we make a good run of it. But instead that God is designing these activities, He's accomplishing His perfect purposes, even so much so as meeting with you inside creation even this morning. It's amazing how much it's the simple things that when we begin to meditate on them, 
soften our hearts and add warmth to our faith and bring greater joy and delight to our lives to remember that God is at work inside creation. And he's at work in your life even now inside creation. Jesus is doing this. He has all of the authority. He's the creator God. Well, it's easy for us to believe that when times are good. And it's easy for us to say, well, God's intervening in my life when good things are happening because we can have all kind of positive things to kind of dwell on and meditate on. But again, a calendar year like this one, which for many, not everybody, but many has been incredibly difficult and demanding, it maybe begins to be a little bit harder. And oftentimes, what we begin to doubt is either that Jesus has the ability to intervene in creation. Well, Matthew's already corrected that one. And so instead, we begin to doubt that he's actually as good as he says he is. Matthew, in chapter 9 here, actually goes out of his way grammatically to highlight that point for us. To highlight that Jesus has the goodness that we all long for. You see, there's also a a second part to this interchange that's so unique, not just that they punch a hole in the roof and lower the guy down right in the middle of some, you know, incredibly awkward social gathering. This is also one of the very few times where the person who needs to be healed never says anything. Normally, it's, Lord, if you would make me well, please do. Normally, it's, Lord, if you would touch me and make me whole. Normally it's a prayer of some kind, oh Jesus, would you make me well? This one is just spectacular because they lower him down and no one says anything. Except Jesus. He initiates the conversation and he could easily scold the man, you're interrupting my teaching going to be honest, if somebody descended from the ceiling in the middle of my sermon, I would be perturbed. Would also be unbelievably distracted. Just stick a fork in it, we're done at that point, right? Instead, Jesus answers with unbearable generosity, restoring the man's soul, preparing him for a life to come that is filled with goodness and beauty and fullness. He forgives his sins. Now, of course, the interchange isn't done there, and as he forgives, everybody in the room says, ah, this is blasphemy in their minds, and Jesus, in verse 4, answers their thoughts. He knows what's going on and says, uh, I love this, we all have this kind of, particularly if you grew up in the South, this mental picture of Jesus being the nicest man you've ever met, and I hate to break it to you, that is unbearably wrong. He is kind, he is gentle. He was not nice the way that Southerners define nice. Southerners define nice as you only say terrible things behind somebody's back and not to their face. That is not Jesus. Verse 4, the dinner party gets more awkward because he looks at his guests right there in front of him and says, why do you do evil in your hearts? Hmm, There it is. And he calls them on it and says, look, if you really doubt my ability... Would you not at least understand that this is how a scam artist would work? 
It's so much easier for a scam artist to talk about forgiving sins than to talk about actually healing the body because there's no way to prove it. You can't prove if your sins are forgiven. You can't prove someone goes to heaven until they're there. And then you can't witness that from here. But calls them out for being evil, for for doubting his goodness, for doubting his truth, for doubting that he's actually who he says he is, and then says as proof, here, get up and walk. So that the man exits the room not just with his body restored, but with his soul restored. And also done in such a way, verse 8, you catch this, the entire room is disturbed with what they see because they understand that God is at work and God is at work in good and great ways. Again, it is a simple thing that intellectually we understand, but so much of that Achilles heel of the American church is that we've understood so much intellectually, but it's never filtered into transforming our faith. So that rather than being preoccupied with the goodness of Christ Jesus, We've watched a church that's grown preoccupied with our inconvenience. A church that's preoccupied because life isn't happening the way I want it to. That my friends and my family or my boss or my coworkers or whatever else it is isn't happening the way I want it to be. I can say I don't think in my entire career I've watched so much second-guessing of God as this calendar year. It's amazing. Most humans, when we talk to each other, have very little confidence in our own ability to understand the world when we're honest. I mean, most of us, when we're honest, are like, look, I'm just doing the best I can to just make it through the week, right? I'm having a hard time organizing any part of my life. I'm just doing the best I can. But it is intriguing how much this year we've just grown so increasingly dishonest to say that I know better than God because I'm disgruntled or discontented with these 17 or 19 or 38 things. The things I can't do. The things I have to do the way that my life is different. It's so easy to be grumpy. You see, the final kind of thing here that Matthew's drawing out, it's not just that Jesus has the authority to kind of interact inside creation. He's the Lord God. It's not just that He is good. Matthew is increasingly in this section trying to highlight for us why Jesus does healing in the first place. These things are all done specifically as proof of who Jesus is. He's, he's proving for His people constantly over and over and over and over and over again, He is who He says He is. 
The miracles are explained to have a purpose. They're there to show that Jesus is the Son of God, that everything He says is true. And if you doubted it, here's proof. He makes the lame to walk. He raises the dead to life. It's the difference between what the world says about Jesus. The world right now says, well, Jesus was probably a good teacher. Well, (laughs) there's... That's so much of a mess, I don't even know how, it confuses me to deal with all at once. But the point being, Jesus has done miraculous things that prove he's not just that. He's the God who made heaven and earth. He's the God who is infinitely wise. He is the second person of the Trinity and creation belongs to him. You see, realize in the time in which he's ministering here, his miracles were designed to function kind of like a, you know, a security ID. Some of you have worked jobs that at some point you had some sort of kind of significant security risk or whatever, and you walked in, you had to have your security badge and scan it or swipe it or have someone watch it or whatever as proof that you are who you say you are. Right? When I worked in a mental hospital, that's what I had to do every day. I had to see my face, I had to scan my badge every day. Boy, that's an awkward day when you forget it, right? Leave it at home? Not good. It is intriguing, though, how many times now as American Christians, I, I think we're still given God's good and miraculous and merciful and gracious kind of proofs in front of us all of the time, and we forget to keep checking the credentials. We've stopped looking at God's good graces and stopped looking at God's mercies and we've stopped looking at God's kindness and God's charity towards us and we only look at ourselves and our inconvenience and our misery and our uncomfortability and our difficulty and we forget we're the most blessed people in human history. You go to the dentist with painkillers, I'm sorry, we don't, we're not allowed to complain anymore. You see, the historians and even the theologians now are writing books right now. I've got one that actually was published last week, just got in the mail, 50 pages in. It's interesting, the whole thesis of the book from this uh, Presbyterian church historian, he's arguing that our current moment in, in world history is defined by such an intense focus on self that we're losing touch with reality. And I think it's intriguing how easy it is for us as Christians to do that, just interacting with God's kindnesses on a daily basis. To be so consumed with me, and I'm not ever thinking about the thee. I want to challenge you to a habit of thought. The habit of thought that I want to challenge you to is an intentional commitment that no matter the circumstance, to dwell on God's 
kindness in the midst of it. To let that be the thing that that occupies your mind and occupies your heart and fills your soul is to meditate on the goodness of God no matter the circumstance. Yeah, COVID's been a hard year. We built a building. Got churches closing left and right of us, and we built a building. If that's not God's mercy, I don't I don't know what is. I remember reading a funeral a number of years ago, a funeral sermon from one of the founding fathers of our great country. He was a uh, uh, pastor in, reformed pastor in England who came over on one of the very early ships to the United States, wasn't United States yet. And in route, his wife died on the ship. And he preached, his, preached her funeral from the, like the kind of elevated bow of the ship to the people in the midst. They have it recorded, the man preaching his own wife's funeral on the ship as they traveled to the, the, new, the new world. What was his opening point of his sermon for his wife's funeral? I'll never forget it. We all should be grateful when we have friends that we love enough that it hurts when they die. Wow. I mean, to be honest, if... I were preaching Nikki's funeral this evening. That would be very sad. I would never have thought that would be my first point. For those of you that are married, be thankful that you have a spouse that you like enough that you would be sad when they die. For those of you that have friends, that you have friends that you like enough that you would be sad when they die. What was that Puritan pastor getting at? I remember it broke my heart. I mean, I cried reading this sermon because he was preoccupied with the goodness of God. That even in the midst of a dead wife, his God was still good and he would dwell on that forever. That doesn't mean he didn't deal with the sad part. I mean, like I said, the rest of the sermon was weeping on my part. But the undergirding principle of it all was God's goodness to this man, God's goodness to these people, God's goodness to this ship, God's kindness is always there. My challenge to this body is that we intentionally Adopt a similar framework that no matter what the good or the bad that happens to us, that we intentionally commit our minds and commit our hearts to contemplating the kindness of our Savior that has said, your sins are forgiven. Because while that is the free offer of the gospel, this is the amazing thing. Through prayer, he doesn't stop there. He says, go ask to be made well. 
Go ask for his kindness. I'll give you just a couple of things. I suspect that if we as a body aggressively committed ourselves to this type of thinking, I suspect it would change us in a number of ways, just very quickly. One, I suspect that if we as a body committed ourselves to constantly fixating on the goodness of God, I suspect everyone here would have more fun. And I don't, I don't mean that sarcastically. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek as much as it entirely sounds. But what I mean is, is I, I suspect that when our amount of complaining drops as a body, the fun for everybody goes up. Plus, it, it gives you that kind of sense of brotherly and sisterly camaraderie that even when difficulty hits, we're in it together. You're my family. We'll make it together. God's still good. He's still taking care of us. We'll make it. Together we can do it. I think not just the fun, the joy would increase. I suspect that we would actually watch a season of intense spiritual growth follow. And here's why. People wonder all of the time why they don't grow more. I'm like, well, it's because many of us are just constantly fixated on eating a diet of self. And when you're constantly consuming self, how are you going to grow? It's like the child that only eats marshmallows 24-7, and they wonder why they never get bigger. It's like, well, all you're getting is diabetes. You're making yourself sick. You're not eating good food. If we were to fix our minds on the goodness of God, I suspect as a body, we would have an intense season of growth. And I'll tell you a third thing is, I suspect our evangelism would become so easy. Because it's good news. When we focus on His goodness, it's easy to start talking about that. How he worked in my life when I was in middle school. How he worked in my life when I was in college. How he worked in my life last week. How he's working in this body's life. How he worked in your life. How he worked in your life. The way he's answered prayers. This miraculous answer to prayer. That miraculous answer. It's easy to talk about it when we're focused on his goodness. When we're focused on ourselves, what do we talk about all the time? The things that make me unhappy. Because the self is an inherently unhappy place. Again, you've heard me say this, but it's why I marvel at the Holy Spirit. What a rotten job that he has to live inside me and work from there. Worst of all possible homes. May it be that passages like this in the larger book of Matthew and the larger scriptures as a whole would be an opportunity for us to contemplate the goodness of our God. I'll make it even a touch more personal. Recognizing that we're all humans in here, at least I assume we are. Most of us have some intense sadness that is filling our soul currently. Or some intense worry or anxiety that is filling our soul currently. Or some intense grief or sorrow. Something is occupying our soul. I'm lovingly putting forth the remedy 
to contemplate the goodness of the God of creation who forgives sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and loving kindness. Forgive us for the way in which we are preoccupied with self. Oh, it fills our minds. It's so easy for me to think about me. Oh, Lord, would you have us think about Jesus instead? In whose name we pray, amen.